<laughs> Hallelujah. All right, you don't want to hear me rambling. What I want to do today is to talk about our core. And um, the, the core was something we, we decided upon before we even set out to plant Ignite Life Church. And I, in a somewhat tongue-in-cheek way, describe us as the WCWC Church, you know, the double WC Church. Because we structure what we do on Sunday around worship, communion, word and community. See, double WC. Got nothing to do with toilets. <laughs> oh, gosh, this is so fast. Uh, so cool. <laughs> anyway, David and Ainsley reckon I shouldn't call us the double WC church. I suppose they've got a point. Well, they've lived, so they're in America. <laughs> Who are those people? I'm sure they do it differently over there anyway. Um, but what I thought it would be helpful to do is just, to, just to explain a little bit about why it is we do it. Not every church does communion as regularly as we do, for example. Not every church is as focused on the idea of community as we are. So I thought it'd be great to explain it. So here we go with worship. And you'll find these words written on our website. You should go and have a look at our website one of these days. I think it's quite a good website. Not that, anyway, I, I did it. So. Some nice photos. Anyway, anyway. So what about we? What what is it about worship that makes it worth doing when we gather together? Well, in a nutshell, it's all about surrender to God. It's not about making a big noise, throwing your hands in the air, jumping up and down. It's about surrendering to God in worship. And when we are worshiping, we tend to shift our focus away from ourselves our environment, our circumstances, our experience, etc., etc., and we move our focus toward Him. And in doing so, we give Him the opportunity to move in our lives. That's what worship is all about. We take our focus away from ourselves and we shift our focus to Him. And when we're focused on him, he can do stuff. When we remove ourselves, he can do stuff. We become open to God's ministry. I want to read to you from Psalm 95. I'm going to read verses 1 to 6. And I'm using the Passion Translation, which I think captures a lot of the uh, essence of the scriptures that I want to share with you today. And uh, look, I just love this. The Psalms themselves, uh, many of them are actually focused on corporate worship. Um, Israel, in fact, there were times of the year when, when Israel would come out of the city, the gates would be closed, and then together they would um, rehearse or go, go through some of these Psalms. And they would then enter into the gates of Jerusalem. So worship was something which had a very strong corporate side to it. Here we go. Psalm 95 uh, verses 1 to 6 from the Passion. Come on, everyone. Let's sing for joy to the Lord. Let's shout our loudest praises 
to our God who saved us. Everyone can meet his face with a thankful heart. Don't hold back your praises. Make him great by your shouts of joy. For the Lord is greatest of all. King God over all gods. In one hand, he holds the mysteries of the earth. And in the other, he hides, sorry, he holds the highest mountain peaks. He's the owner of every ocean, the engineer and sculptor of the earth itself. Come and kneel before this creator God. Come and bow before the mighty God, our majestic maker. How's that for an invitation to worship? Come on, everyone. Let's sing for joy to the Lord. Let's shout our loudest praises to our God who saved us. That's a pretty good reason to worship, isn't it? He's our God who saved us. Hebrews 12, 28. Since we are receiving our rights to an unshakable kingdom, we should be extremely thankful and offer God the purest worship that delights his heart as we lay down our lives in absolute surrender, filled with awe. As we lay down our lives in absolute surrender. Filled with all when we worship, when we take our focus away from ourselves and redirect it to Him, we're laying down our lives and we're offering them to Him. I love the word awe. I'm, I'm very sorry that the word awesome has become. A word which is used in so many contexts now that don't contain anything awful about them at all. You know, we talk about that awesome steak I had last night. Well, what an awesome day it was at the beach. Do you know what? Something that fills you with awe should cause you to fall flat on your face on the ground. You should be so overpowered by the situation that you fall flat on your face and you're caused to worship God. That's what awe is all about. I'd suggest you find another word than awesome in 90% of the instances in which you use it because it grossly undervalues what it is to be filled with awe. It's to be so filled that you cannot even We don't do it on your face worship too often here. You can if you like. But you get the point, don't you? Worship is so important because it focuses on Him. When we're focused on Him, then He can work in us. I have a pastor friend whose son is also a pastor who preached on worship a couple of years ago. One of the things he said, which has always stuck with me, is Worship is practiced in heaven. Because I'll tell you what, when we're in heaven, our focus will be on Him, not on ourselves. So if for no other reason, 
get involved in worship because you're practicing for eternity in heaven. Let us move on to talk a little bit about communion. We are, I freely admit, a little bit different to most Pentecostal churches in that we have communion nearly every Sunday. We're not religious about it, so there are some Sundays, some circumstances when we don't have communion, but it really is part of our practice at Sunday Connect. Um, maybe it's because I was brought up Anglican and we used to have communion every week, I don't know. I might be biased, but what I'd like to think is that this is what I believe. Communion is a reminder of the incredible grace of God by which we're rescued from sin and set free to become all God intended us to be. We have communion to remind ourselves of the incredible grace of God by which He rescued us from sin. And in doing so, of course, He rescued us from His wrath. He will one day pour out His wrath on the sin of the world. The Bible is very clear about that. But through salvation, our sins are totally obliterated and we're no longer subject to His wrath. Once we have given ourselves over to Him, then we are free to become all that He intended us to be. We're free to fulfill our destiny in Christ. In 1 Corinthians 11, 23 to 26, again from the Passion Translation, this is what we read. I have handed down to you what came to me by direct revelation from the Lord Himself. The same night in which he was handed over, he took bread and gave it, sorry, and gave thanks. Then he distributed it to the disciples and said, Take and eat your fill. It is my body which is given for you. Do this to remember me. He did the same with the cup of wine after supper and said, This cup seals the new covenant with my blood. Drink it. And whenever you drink this, do it to remember me. Whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are retelling the story, proclaiming our Lord's death until he comes. So the reason we do communion as regularly as we do is because we want to remember. And as you know, Jeanette and I often take communion together at home. Why? We do it. To remember, we never want to take for granted the grace of God extended to us, the grace by which we are saved from sin. And actually this passage tell us, tells us there's something in addition to remembrance. So remembrance, in a sense, we look back to the historical fact of the crucifixion, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus Christ. But this passage tells us we're also looking forward because every time we do it, as it says here, we're retelling the story, the story of the life of Jesus on earth 
enemy our Lord's death until he comes. And so that is something in the future. It's something which is prophetic. So when we take the bread, and in our case, the fruit juice, it could be lolly water actually, it tastes a bit like a bit of sugar added. When we take that, we don't stand up like ancient Israel did and recite our history, right? But spiritually speaking, we do. We retell the story of our salvation. That's a spiritual transaction that goes out into the spirit world. Every demon is that story. Every force of evil hears that story. The story of our salvation. That's what this is saying. And we remind Satan that he's defeated and that Jesus is coming back. That there will be a new heaven and a new earth and that ultimately Jesus will reign, there'll be no pain, no sorrow, no suffering, no sickness. In fact, there'll be no Satan because he'll be cast into the fire. That's what we're doing through that very simple act of taking the bread and the juice. We're retelling the story and we're reminding the spirit world that Jesus is coming again. And he will come and he will reign in victory. There's nothing short of So what, what we do when we take communion is very, very powerful. It has a spiritual significance that probably most of us can never really get our heads around. Because the spiritual world is an infinite world and we exist in a finite world. It's really hard to get our heads around how important some of these things are. So that's why we do communion as regularly as we do. Well, let me turn now to the Word. I, I talked about the idea of classical Christianity a little earlier on. Classical Christianity essentially is... Christianity which is built upon the Word of God, the Bible. We believe that the Bible is authoritative. We believe that it was given to us through human beings but by the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit inspired every word that those people wrote. The Holy Spirit didn't overturn the personality of the person writing didn't overturn the culture, didn't overturn their history or anything like that. So the Holy Spirit worked through the current circumstances of the person and through their individual personality, even down to their writing style. But nevertheless, each word they wrote was inspired by the Holy Spirit. So the Bible is the focus of our discussion points. I tend not to call them sermons, it's not that I'm frightened of that, but I want people to talk about our discussion points. When we have community time or 
you know, sometimes Dougal will send me a, a text message during the week uh, reflecting upon um, something that, that was said. That's really good. That's really, and, and sometimes you might think, I'm not, I'm not 100% sure if, if Rod's right. Let's talk about it. Because I'm probably not always right. Because, you know, the Bible even tells us we see as through a glass dimly. And one of the reasons why we come together is so that we can correct each other and, and, and encourage one another to learn from God's Word. So that, that's why I've always had a heart to call these things discussion points that, that you know, it, it will kind of encourage us to talk about stuff between Sunday to next. So that's the whole point. It's the, now, the Bible is the foundation of thought, word, and deed in the Christian's life. In fact, I would go so far to say that the Bible, the Word of God, is the final arbiter on all matters concerning Christian faith and practice. Now, actually, not a lot of Christians believe that. And you can tell that by the way they talk about the Word of God and by the way they behave. But classical Christianity places a very high weighting on the written Word of God. And if ever there's an issue, we go back to the Word of God, we do the very best we can to discern what that foundational document says about an issue. And of course, the Bible is not a handbook on psychology, sociology, theology, geology, history, or any of those things, or business. It's not, it's not a handbook. But what it does is it sets out a framework of working out our salvation for living a life of faith, for thinking, for speaking, and for acting in a way that reflects God's character. So that's why we go back to the Bible whenever any issue arises, uh, arises as we walk through this Christian life. It is so important. It is so important. And of course, um, these days, a confession like that can land you in a fair bit of trouble because a lot of people don't like what the Word of God says. They don't like what it says about how we are to live. They don't like what it says about who ultimately we are responsible to or we are accountable to. Joshua 1.8, New Living Translation. And of course, when this was written, we didn't have the Bible as we know it, but we still had some ancient scriptures. Joshua 1.8, study this book of instruction continually. Meditate on it day and night. So you'll, you start that one again. Meditate on it night and day, so you will be sure to obey everything written in it. If you don't know what's there, you can't live your life according to it, can you? Only then will you prosper and succeed in all you do. That's not a promise, by the way, that nothing will ever go wrong in your life. But if you want to live the life that God has destined you to live, 
be in the Word of God constantly. Meditate on it day and night so that you will live your life according to God's character. Hebrews 4.12 from the Passion. For we have the living Word of God which is full of energy and it pierces more sharply than a two-edged sword. It will even penetrate to the very core of our being where soul and spirit, bone and marrow meet. It interprets and reveals the true thoughts and secret motives of our hearts. And I can attest to that from personal experience. That's, it is a living, it's not like any other book. It's not like, it, it's a living book. Perhaps that's why it still remains the world's best-selling book. It's living. Why? It, 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 it's powerful. It's more powerful than a two-edged sword. Right? This book can change our lives. It interprets and reveals the true thoughts and secret motives of our hearts. That's what makes it living. And of course, you know, when we pick it up, it's the Holy Spirit that reveals the truth of the Word to us. The Holy Spirit, of course, is a living being. 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17. Every scripture has been written by the Holy Spirit, the breath of God. It will empower you by its instruction and correction, giving you the strength to take the right direction and lead you deeper into the path of godliness. Then you'll be God's servant, fully mature and perfectly prepared to fulfill any assignment God gives you. We talked about assignment a few weeks ago. Every scripture has been written by the Holy Spirit, the breath of God. That is why we regard this as the final arbiter on every matter concerning Christian faith and practice. So let me turn now to the final of our four pillars and that is community. God is community. Now this takes us into the idea of the Trinity, one God but existing as three persons. It's a doctrine which is pretty hard to get your head around. But, the, but God is Father God, Jesus the Son, and Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, in a very real sense, is the agent of God on the earth today. Jesus said, when I go, I will send the Comforter, the Holy Spirit. So it's the Holy Spirit with us constantly. Being created in God's image, we thrive in community. On our own, at best, we only survive. So when we try to do life on our own, we can survive, but we will not thrive. Because the way in which we've been created is to thrive, to flourish in the context of family. And that's not always easy for us. It's really easy to treat church that is the gathering of 
the saints on a Sunday or whatever other day of the week um, you do it. It's really easy to treat that as a transaction, right? I go to church, sing a few songs, take communion, listen to a discussion point or a sermon, or maybe have a cup of tea or coffee, then I'll go home. Just a transaction. It's really, really easy to do that. And, and in our busy, busy lives, it is so easy to simply treat it as a transaction. Oh, well, I go to such and such a church. But with whom do you have relationship? See, that's what it's about. The institutional church is intended to be a family or families. I, I think I was listening to a sermon on this this morning. It's intended to be a family of families. And we flourish when we operate as a community, supporting one another in our times of sorrow and our times of uh, rejoicing. You know, when good things happen, when, when bad things happen, when sad things happen, it's good for us to have our church family around us. And that's especially the case when Natural family is not all that it could be. We're not the same as the natural family. We can never be a true substitute for the natural family, but we are a family. And the idea of family is applied to the church gathered frequently in the New Testament. Here's a couple of um, scriptures. First is from Hebrews. Chapter 10, verses uh, 24 to 25. Um, and, and this was written to Jewish Christians, so the converts to the Christian faith uh, among the Jews. And they were under a lot of persecution. So it was a pretty tough time for them. But this is what the writer of Hebrews says. Discover creative ways to encourage others and to motivate them towards acts of compassion doing beautiful works as expressions of love. This is not the time to pull away and neglect meeting together as some have formed the habit of doing, because we need each other. In fact, we should come together even more frequently, eager to encourage and urge each other onward as we anticipate that day dawning. That day, of course, is the second coming of Jesus. In Acts 2, verses 42 to 47, we read, Every believer, and this is a, a, a description of the early church, every believer was faithfully devoted to following the teachings of the apostles. Their hearts were mutually linked to one another, sharing communion and coming together regularly for prayer. A deep sense of holy awe swept over everyone, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. All the believers were in fellowship as one body, and they shared with one another whatever they had. Out of generosity, they even sold their assets to distribute the proceeds of those uh, to those who were in need among them. Daily, they met together in the temple courts and in one another's homes to celebrate communion. They shared meals together with joyful hearts and tender humility. They were continually filled with praises to God enjoying the favour of all the people. And the Lord kept adding to their number daily those who were coming to 
message, by the way, has sometimes been used to um, build a, a doctrine that's become known as Christian communism, uh, in which the, they advocate we sell everything up and just share everything. Actually, the world can't actually work that way um, because, well, for a start, that actually means nobody would have a business. And so there'd be no creation of wealth and we'd have no food on the table. So it was never intended, and, and by the way, they never sold their houses. So historically, in the early church, they didn't actually sell everything, but they did sell off assets so that they could pull the process to make sure there was no one who was poor among them, right? So it's looking after one another in this family that we call the church. And it's interesting, isn't it? They shared communion. They met uh, in the temple courts. So that was, if you like, the formal church structure in which they operated, but they also met in one another's homes. So the, the, the Jewish Christians, they didn't abandon their, their Jewish identity. They never did. So they kept on going to the synagogue. In fact, elsewhere in the Bible, it says they went to the synagogue for teaching and then they met in each other's homes for um, fellowship. And so the picture here of community, it, it, it actually happens outside the formal church meeting. So we, we've always placed great um, emphasis on the idea of community. We can't do it in quite the same way we used to because of all the, the COVID uh, restrictions and we've got connect groups, of course, and they're not all based on sort of coming along and listening to biblical teaching. Some of them are purely um, for fellowshipping purposes. And that's what it's meant to be like. Why is that? Because whether we like it or not, we're made in God's image. God is community. And we thrive in community because we are created in his image. And so... One of the things we can do to practically implement this is every now and then ask someone else who comes to church for a cup of coffee or a meal or a barbecue, just, you know, catch up because it's good for us all if we spend time in community. I love that photo, by the way. I've actually been looking for an excuse to use that for weeks. <laughs> and I, I reckon, you know, kids on a wharf, they could be looking at fish, they could be poking the fish. <laughs> they <laughs> might be doing that as well. Yeah, they could. I yes. assume that. <laughs> yeah, Magella. Yeah. I think you could go double CW. That would work. Oh, so <laughs> that, would, that would actually work. Yeah, WC is not yeah, always communion, a good thing, is it? <laughs> word, community worship. CWC, yeah. yes, it does. It's actually an, it's easier to say. So, yeah. do you do community first? Because um, I could come down at about 5 a.m. most Sundays. And, 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 <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I'm no, having no, a cup of coffee. Um, you know, that might get me in a good mood. I'll be here on my own. Yeah. <laughs> right, yeah. So we'll still, but I get your point. We don't have, it doesn't have to be. WC, WC. I just, that just tickles my fingers. <laughs> anyway, folks, that's, um, every now and then I do like to um, spend a little bit of time explaining why it is we do what we do. And that's why we, we 